All right, for our discussion in our disciplines this morning, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 1. We're going to be looking at the um, what is referred to as Mary's song or the Magnificat, and that's in verses 46 to 55. And uh, the reason why we're going to read this and look at this closely today is we want to see uh, just how important it is that you know your Bible uh, based on the events that are coming. I want to just remind us of what our disciplines are to build disciplines. Uh, these are things that we want to keep in front of you men all year long. Discipline one, the most important discipline that we are men who are characterized by caring well for our own heart. We're meeting consistently with the Lord over his word. We're reading that word devotionally. We're reading it intellectually. We're reading it carefully. We're reading good quantities of God's word. We're filling our mind with his word. Then we're communicating back with God in prayer. And we have a, a healthy, strong, vibrant, consistent prayer life. That flows into discipline two, which is in our homes. We take the fruit of our own heart shepherding into our homes. It has bearing on those that we live with, whether it's your roommates, your wife, your kids, your parents. Um, you take your own heart shepherding into your relationship with them. If you're the head of your household, you are going to be leading your house with the fruit of your own heart shepherding. And that is the horsepower that your house and your household has to live with. And so it's so important that we do that. And then we take the fruit of our own well-functioning home into this church. And you engage in relationships with people like we've been doing this morning. This is discipline three, the ministry. Whether it's informal conversations that you have like we're doing here, or whether it's in some formal capacity that you serve in at this church, your own heart shepherding, your own home functioning does have great bearing on how it is that we function here at the church and how influential and fruitful we are. And the interesting thing is that it's something I haven't mentioned much before, but those, those also flow backwards as well. When we have conversations in ministry context here, when we're serving together, whether it's a casual conversation or serving in some capacity, that does equip us to have a better marriage and that does equip us to have better heart care because people are sharing what they're learning in their word and their own study and that helps us know how to go back to the Lord and, and increase the, the vibrancy and the depth of our own prayer life and our own scripture reading. Now, well, we looked at deacon qualifications, which is our, our fourth discipline last time. We looked at deacon qualifications and elder qualifications and, and every single person should be striving after those uh, regardless of whether you're currently serving as a deacon or an elder or not. Because when you look at those instructions, those instructions are actually reiterated throughout the New Testament to believers as a whole, believers in the church. So we should all be men who are striving after all of those things. And then the fifth discipline is the hermeneutic. We all want to be men who are growing in our capacity to handle the word. And, and our growth in that primarily is from our own reading in the word. As we read the word, become better at reading the word. But also we, we want to make sure that we do everything we can to put at this church equipping in front of the men so that they're able to uh, become more equipped formally with any kind of teaching that we have available. So those are our five disciplines. Let's make sure we keep those in front of ourselves all year long and hopefully on an ongoing basis in our lives. So let's look at Luke chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 46 to 55. And uh, before I get started here, uh, we want to make sure that we understand the context. Mary is in a conversation with her cousin Elizabeth, and Elizabeth is with child with John the Baptist. And Mary is with child with our Savior, the Messiah, Jesus. And uh, it's important for us to remember in this conversation that Mary is a teenager, somewhere between 15 and 19 years old. Uh, she is a teenager. And so we're reading the words of someone who is a teenager. And we want to be mindful of that as we read this. And we see the depth of her understanding of God's word. 
After I read the passage, I'm going to go through a few things that help us understand how important it was that Mary knew her Old Testament, her Hebrew Old Testament. So let's read together. Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. For he has regard for the humble state of his bondslave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud of the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Again, these are the words of a teenager. These are inscripturated, but this is a conversation that a teenager was having with her cousin. Verse 46, Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord. Mary knows from reading her Bible that God is to be exalted. She understands that God is holy, God is separate from us, and that he is to be exalted above us. His realm his situation, his position is above ours, and she knows that. And she says in verse 47 that my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. She knows that there is joy in a relationship with God, and she knows something about God here. She knows that uh, Isaiah 45 tells us, there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. She knows that God is a Savior, uh, she doesn't just know that he's God. She knows that he is a saving God, so she knows his character. But she also knows her own sin. She says he is my Savior. She understands that God's saving character has been applied to her, and she knows this. Verse 48, he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. Clearly, she sees herself rightly before God. She sees herself as God's servant. She calls herself his bond slave one that is enlisted into God's service for life. And she knows that. And uh, she understands the position that she has. She knows that she is carrying the Messiah in her womb. And she knows that it will be her task to bring that Messiah into the world. And she sees that as an act of service to God because that is part of God's plan for redemption of those who put their trust in him. She understands at the end of verse 48, for behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. She understands that there are going to be generations and generations and generations of people who will put their faith and their trust in the same Savior that she does. She understands that her son will be the Savior. And again, she's a teenager and she knows this. And she understands that for generations after, leading up to our generation, that people will look back and they will be very, very thankful for the service that she provided in carrying this child and bringing him into this world and raising him so that he could go on to be the Savior who would go to the cross for us. And she has that cross in view when she says, the Mighty One has done great things for me and holy is his name. She understands that even though she's bringing this Savior into the world, that it is faith in that Savior that she already possesses that has saved her and rescued her from her sin. And she understands that God is separate, God is holy, God is differentiated from all people, but she has been reconciled to him in his holy character because of who 
her Savior is, and she understands how great that work is. And again, she's a teenager, and she gets this. She knows her Old Testament. In verse 50, she's quoting Psalm 103, verse 17. Psalm 103, verse 17 says, The loving kindness of Yahweh is from everlasting to everlasting for those who fear him. She understands God's favor, God's disposition towards those who fear him. She understands that to have a right relationship with God and to be in God's favor demands that we fear him. So she really, really knows her Bible well, and she understands this. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. She understands that, that God is the one who has discretion over all of our being and all of our well-being. She understands that. She's living in a context where Roman rule is prominent and it's pervasive and it's in effect, it's in full force and there's nothing that people can do. She reads, uh, she speaks in verse 52. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. She understands this. She understands that even though there are rulers and that nations come and nations go, that God is the one who brings them into power. God is the one who takes them away. But in the end, God exalts the one who is humble. And she's talking about an eternity there, that God has an eternity of relationship with him to those who are humble before him. He's filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. She sees her situation as good things. Uh, we have to just step back and remember what it would be like in Jewish culture for a woman, a young woman, to be with child without being married. There was a lot of shame. There was a lot of public disgrace that would go with that. And she sees and she knows and she understands that. She's not blind to that. She understands this, but she knows that God is at work in her life with good things. She's bringing the Messiah into the world. And she has a comprehension of all of this because she knows her Bible. She knows her Hebrew Old Testament really well. Verses 54 and 55 are really helpful. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy. She knows the role of Israel. She knows the role of Israel is to demonstrate to the world around them, the, the Arab world around them, the Gentile world that surrounds Israel that Israel's role in that is to be a light to the rest of the world, that the gospel would, would, that the rest of the world could see Israel in the way that they live. She understands Israel's role to reflect to the rest of the world what it looks like to have a right relationship with the God that created them. And she understands that, that uh, this was from eternity. This was something that was established early, that God spoke to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and again in Genesis chapter 15 saying, all of the nations will be blessed through you. So she understands her Bible really, really well. And the reason why that's important to us this morning is Mary's understanding of her Old Testament helped her navigate her circumstances really well. She navigated her circumstances really, really well as an unwed, pregnant teenage woman. And the reason why she could was because she understood Scripture. She understood that God had a design to bring the Messiah into the world, and the Messiah would be born of a virgin. And once she realized and once she was informed by Gabriel that she would be that virgin, she was on board and she was ready, even though the situation was hard. And the way that relates to us is we need to read our Bibles. We need to understand and know our Bibles really well, because we don't know what's coming later today. We don't know what's coming this week. We don't know what's coming next month. 
or for the rest of this year. But when we're reading our Bibles well and we're praying well, we're, we're cultivating a deep, rich relationship with the Lord, we can navigate the circumstances that God brings to us in confidence and joy in the same way that Mary did. And uh, if a, a teenage girl can, can see this and can have the right kind of relationship with God that would help her navigate bringing the Messiah into this world and raising that Messiah and then watching him go to a cross, the same God that gave her the grace to do that will give us the grace to navigate the things that are in front of us. So let's make sure that we're, we're reading our Bibles. We're reading our Bibles devotionally. We're reading our Bibles carefully. Um, we're reading our Bibles worshipfully. Uh, so that and we're communicating with God in prayer. We're confessing our sin. We're asking the Lord for help. We're leading our families well. So that when the Lord brings to us the things that he's ordained for us, we are ready to navigate those things with confidence and with joy in him. So just an encouragement to you guys this morning. Let me pray and then we'll get going. Lord God, thank you for this great morning, for an opportunity to see a beautiful sunrise and see your creation. Lord, thank you for bringing us here, giving us your word and giving us a desire to learn more about you. Lord, as we enter into a conversation about forgiveness and reconciliation, Lord, help us to um, examine our own hearts, be quick to see um, where we're harboring bitterness and where we can grow in our ability to um, see others through the lens that you see us through. Lord, help us to quickly forgive. Um, Lord, help me to be clear. Help me to share the aspects of your word that um, will be most fruitful for these men's lives this morning, Lord, in your name. Amen. All right. Um, I think you guys have a quote in your notes, and so I'm going to read that quote. It comes from Jerry Rags, um, Men of Grace and Granite, and so let me read it. Men typically tend to resolve conflict in a way that wouldn't honor Christ or build up one another. We typically resolve conflicts by overpowering. If you become good at manipulating by your sheer maleness, then the command to become a compassionate and merciful forgiveness forgiver is going to be neglected in your life and home. This pattern will devastate your Christian life and your testimony, but to an even, even greater extent, your marriage. Forgiveness is key. If you don't love mercy and learn to forgive, your intimate walk with the Father will be harmed and your conscience will be bludgeoned. The greatest gift you can give your wife and family is to be like Jesus Christ. You are most like Christ when you forgive. This lesson is on forgiveness, reconciliation, and conflict resolution. And I, as I developed the lesson and started to kind of work through, it's, it's mostly a lesson on forgiveness this morning. Um, it worked out well that Smed on Sunday talked a little bit about Matthew 18. And, um, and so I can just say, remember what Smed told you on Sunday when we get to that part. Um, but I want to spend a lot of time this morning talking about biblical, biblical forgiveness. So as we think about forgiveness, um, let's talk about, well, let's just talk about it. If we don't forgive biblically, we actually can't reconcile with people, um, 
I know that you guys can sit there and think about someone that you had a fight with or your relationship is not where you wish it were um, because of some form of a conflict. Over the course of this morning, kind of keep that in mind. Keep what led to that in mind as we talk about this. Um, most likely, or really I think I can say conclusively, sin was in the middle of that conflict. And so think about where your sin was, where their sin was, and how that went down. Um, anywhere there's sin, forgiveness needs to be close by. This isn't a theory of Matt Kelso. Um, this is actually what scripture teaches. So turn with me to Ephesians 4, and we'll look at it very quickly. Um, 4.32 or 4.31, we'll start with. Let all bitterness and anger and wrath and shouting and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Instead, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, graciously forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has graciously forgiven you. The first half of 21 has several terms, five different terms. We have bitterness there, which means resentfulness. I like to think of bitterness as stored up anger for a rainy day. Or we have wrath, which is a violent outbreak of anger. Anger for, with, for which boiling up and is soon subsiding again. Which then he talks about anger. It is an indignation driven by human passion. Or clamor, the outcry of passion, the outward manifestation of anger. And then slander is evil speaking or injurious speech. So worded differently, 31 could say, let all manner of harshness and violent outbreaks of wrath and anger and brawling and slanderous speech, let that be put away from you altogether, with all, along with all manner of malice. And then Paul tells us how, in verse 32. He says, through forgiveness. And how are we to forgive? Just like God does. When sinned against, we are to imitate God's forgiveness. In the next verse, Paul states what he implied in verse 32. He says, therefore, be imitators of God. Today's lesson will help you understand what it means to be an imitator of God when it comes to forgiveness. And this will lead us to a brief overview of what conflict resolution and peacemaking is. But today, like I said before, we're going to spend most of our time on biblical forgiveness. So let's define forgiveness. The most common Greek word group for forgiveness in the New Testament is a word that means to release or to let go. And then the second word group means to give graciously or freely pardon. Forgiveness means a complete release with extravagant, lavish mercy. Let me say that again for your notes. Forgiveness is a complete release with extravagant, lavish mercy. We could be content to just stack up these definitions of forgiveness and move on. But God illustrates forgiveness throughout Scripture, and so I want to spend some time looking at some illustrations in Scripture about forgiveness. So turn with me to Psalm 103. 
We're going to do a little bit of sword drills during this part. Psalm 103, verse 12. It says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Forgiveness starts with an acknowledgement that we have transgressions. We have done something against God. And then it leads to the removal of them. How wide is this removal? This word picture basically says infinitely separated. An immeasurable distance. You can't measure the distance between the east and the west. They're as far as anything is. That's how far God has removed our sins from us. I'm going to go ahead and read Micah 7. Uh, And while I'm doing that, if you guys want to turn to Jeremiah 50, we'll get there in a minute. Micah 7, verses 18 through 20 says, Who is a God like you, who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever, but he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our forefathers from the days of old. Forgiveness is rooted here in a heart of compassion. He will subdue, he will literally tread underfoot sin here is regarded as a personal enemy, which by God's sovereign grace will be entirely subdued. God will love us in spite of the fact that we and Israel should expect nothing but his anger. He will tread down our sins that rise up against us and threaten to overpower us. Just as Psalm 65, three announces, and just as Pharaoh's chariots were hurled into the sea and sank into the depths like a stone or lead weight, so God will hurl and cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. And then the Jeremiah 50 passage. Jeremiah 50, verse 20. In those days and at that time, declares the Lord, search will be made for the iniquity of Israel, but there will be none. And for the sins of Judah, but they will not be found, for I will pardon those whom I leave as a remnant. When God forgives, you can send out a search party. You can have night vision scopes. You can have satellite reconnaissance. And there's nothing that can be done to find the sin that God removed. We'll talk later about the parable of the unforgiving slave in Matthew 18. But it gives us an important picture of forgiveness. There, the first slave owned the king a debt of tens of millions in any currency you care to name. It was a debt impossible to repay. But when the slave begged his patience to allow repayment, the king went a step further. And the lord of that slave felt compassion and released him. He forgave the debt. Turn with me one more time to Colossians 2. be looking at verses 13 and 14. And you, being dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, 
he made you alive with him, having graciously forgiven us all our transgressions. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, he also has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. What a great word picture that is of God's forgiveness. He made believers alive in Christ, and he did that through forgiveness. Paul writes, He made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Having made a statement about God's forgiveness at the end of verse 13, Paul continued to speak of that same forgiveness in verse 14, only using imagery. He made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Here's the picture Paul was painting to illustrate God's forgiveness. He had in his possession a legal document, a certificate of debt. On that certificate were recorded decrees against us. The word decrees has to do with God's laws. God has as, had, as it were, a piece of paper that listed out every single time we sinned, every time we broke one of his laws. Not one time, which would have demanded the same punishment, um, but every single hostile act that we had against God, he listed them together on a single piece of paper. Imagine that for a second. Imagine the significance of that. Imagine a holy and righteous God seeing every single thing that you've done. This is an unpayable debt. And that the cross, that piece of paper, was canceled. The Greek word Paul used could be translated erased. The certificate recording our legal obligation to God was rubbed out. It became unreadable. God took Christ's blood and wrote across it, paid in full. The notice of our debt was blotted out. Or as Paul succinctly stated at the end of verse 14, it was taken out of the way. God nailed that paper to the cross and left it there. In summary, God's forgiveness is the cancellation of an unpayable debt that the sinner owes to God. It is a blotting out or a removal of the guilt of sin. So now we start to transition towards what does our forgiveness look like? And the first question I expect is, we can't pardon people from their sins. That's not in our power. Only God can deal with the fact of a person's guilt before God. We can't release them from divine consequences. So what are we called to do? We are called to release them from any personal right we may think that person has over us. Someone sins against us, that person that you had in mind at the beginning of this lesson, if someone sins against you, um, you probably feel like they owe you something. Biblical forgiveness is to wipe whatever you feel like they owe you from that slate. They no longer have to settle an account with us. The debt of wrongdoing must be released. Let's illustrate this for a second with a couple of scenarios. 
thinking back on Ephesians 4, 31 and 32, it said, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as Christ, God in Christ also has forgiven you. And you're sitting there going, but last week my wife was being obtuse. Yeah, and we're called to release her from any personal right we may think we have over her. She no longer has to settle an account with us. But what if I help my friend move and he didn't even give me pizza? We're called to release him from every personal right we think he has over us. What if my boss has no concept of boundaries? We're called to release him from every personal right we think he may have over us. See what I'm doing here? What about the hard cases? What about a father that beat me? Or my wife was raped as a child by a family member. We're called to release them from every personal right we think they may have over. We think we may have over them. They no longer have to settle an account with us. That is the depth of what biblical forgiveness needs to look like. How in the world could we do that? I'm glad you asked. Our next topic is to talk about that. One sec. Sometime around Thanksgiving, I got a cough and it's never gone away. It's super fun, especially at night. So the question I have to answer the question about how we're supposed to do that is, does our forgiveness parallel positional or parental forgiveness? When we, put our, when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, then on the basis of Christ's payment, God forgives our unpayable debt to him. He judiciously sets our account so that we own nothing now, nor will we ever owe anything in the future. He could rightfully expect payment in full. Yet though we would spend an eternity in hell, the debt we owe could never ever be paid. On that ground alone, we stand in a permanent state of grace. We learn that from Romans 5. We are judicially and positionally forgiven of all of our sin for all of eternity. Whether we confess that specific sin or not, those who stand in Christ stand forever covered by the righteousness of Christ. If you are a believer, if you have turned your life over to Christ, there is nothing you will do or can do that will separate you from the love of Christ. This is a clear, finished work. I'm not suggesting we forgive this way. To do that would assume that I can forgive once and for all time, and that's an untenable concept. God provided his own all-sufficient sacrifice through which he pardons permanently on that ground alone. When someone sins against me, I have no sacrifice of my own on which ground I can give forgiveness. Therefore, my forgiveness is not exactly like God's forgiveness. Let me see if I can say this differently. God gives conditional forgiveness because he has the ability to hold the conditions. 
This is where I want to turn to Matthew 18. Turn with me. It's kind of a long passage. We're going to read 23 through 35 together. And actually, I'm just going to start in 21. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him ten thousand talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children and all that he had, and repayment to be made. Therefore the slave fell to the ground and was prostrating himself before God, saying, Have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And feeling compassion, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him 100 denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and was pleading with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed to him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you do not forgive his brother from your hearts. What a clear picture we have here of what God did when he pardoned our debt. And the, the parable doesn't tell us, therefore, go hold something over this guy's head. Make sure that he repays a debt in a similar way so that we can pardon it. That's not at all what this is saying. This passage says, you were forgiven, so go forgive. Because of what God did to us, to our sin at the cross, we are now empowered and required to forgive, to release, to pardon those that have sinned against us. Jesus' parable here teaches the very opposite of conditional forgiveness between two people who stand in a permanent state of forgiving grace. Jesus' points here are because believers have received a full pardon through the sufficient sacrifice of the king, they must lavish that same mercy upon all comparatively minuscule debts incurred by other servants. I think that's an important note when you think about the, the debt that the slave owed the king and then the difference between that and 100 denarii. Um, when we're sinned against, we have to keep in mind the significance of what sin God has pardoned in our own hearts compared to however anyone sinned against you. 
even in those extreme scenarios. Because we always stand in the permanent state of forgiving grace, we should immediately and lavishly pardon every debt owed to us, whether petitioned or not. Don't miss that. I'm going to say it again. We always stand as Christians in a permanent state of forgiving grace. So we must lavishly pardon every debt owed to us. I feel like I've touched on this, but I want to emphasize this point. The question could be asked, do we forgive others because of our full pardon in Christ or because they ask? Some maintain that another's repentance is a condition they must meet before we grant forgiveness. I've heard this taught, but the Matthew 18 parable is clear. This cannot be the case. If this were okay, what would the condition of their forgiveness need, what would the condition need to be for us to grant their forgiveness? Did they say something to you that met your sense of justice and now you can forgive? What criteria are you creating? Are you saying, oh, well, now that I know they get what they did to me, now I'm willing to forgive. That's just not the biblical template of Matthew 18. And unfortunately, that's taught as an okay thing to do way too often. We need to look at God's word and see what God's word teaches. It's very clear here. If I were to forgive this under the same conditional way that God does, I would be assuming two things. I have the same authority and right to demand the meeting of the condition, and the debt owed to me is the same as that which is owed to God. Clearly, neither of those are true. So we do not actually release someone from their obligation before God. We're releasing them from their obligation before us. That's an important contrast. And where we're going to harbor anger and bitterness and malice is going to be our own focus on their obligation before us. That's where our selfish, prideful hearts get in the way of relationships. We can't judicially forgive anyone. We have no power to do this. But we are to release them. When we release others from their personal debt of injury to us, we are expressing the kind of forgiveness we enjoy every moment of every day we stand in the grace of God. When we do this before an offender asks for forgiveness, because we stand permanently forgiven even when we don't seek it, and if they never ask, that's okay. It's not our personal right to judge. I get this is hard, especially in the hard cases. I get this is hard in the evening, easy cases. When you have that fight with your spouse and you're like, she just doesn't think, see things clearly. She needs to ask for my forgiveness and then we'll move on. That, that's not the biblical process. We are called to demonstrate the restoring and, and reconciling expression of forgiveness in our relationships. 
So when someone injures you, offends you, you think they owe you restitution, you release them from the personal liability to yourself. You forgive them the offense. They owe you nothing personally. And you will treat them as if you expect no personal payment. I guess I have to set that on the ground. I really need to get my dad to make a podium here too. That way there's some place for my water. Where was I? When you have already forgiving them, forgiven them by releasing them from their personal debt to you as an expression of God's judicial pardoning of us, then all that is left to be concerned with are these two very diff- these two very important components. Their broken relationship with God, which you are now helping them restore, and their broken communion with you. Not because you demand payment personally, but because mending with you is a means for them to restore their communion with God. That's really what biblical peacemaking is all about. When the offender comes to you and desires to acknowledge the offense, they are moving toward purity and holiness in their lives. They are not making payment to you on a debt owed to you, for they owe you nothing. You have no authority or right to hold anything against them. But because God wants his children to love one another and to treat each other with kindness, then they need to be restored to you, that they might once again be pleasing to God. So this is the part of the lesson that talks about what biblical peacemaking looks like. I think you also have in your notes this quote. Honestly, I stole this out of my wife's notes on this lesson, so I don't know where she got this quote from. I just thought it was really good. Um, But it says, Peacemaking, like all other aspects of the Christian life, begins with our hearts and aims for God's glory being displayed through saved and sanctified lives, growing and strengthening his church. If sin and conflict threaten to take us off that aim, we must purposefully walk the path of peacemaking, taking the steps of repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation. I want to talk a little bit to you men about some wrong ways we're tempted as men to solve relational issues. I found this in the same source where the initial quote was. Um, Jerry Ragg has a Grace and Granite book that he takes through it's kind of their similar program to our build and in that he has a section on um, just reconciling relationships in the home and he gives off a list of um, ways men tend to try to um, just manage a relationship in unbiblical means Uh, and I thought they were helpful to just put in front of us and think through as we primarily in our homes this is kind of the context where this is given but I think as we think about the fights, the disagreements we have with our spouses. Um, I know I've fallen into the trap of, I think, every single one of these. Uh, And so I'm just going to list these off. And as you think about this, try to think about some examples where you've done this and how this has been really clearly unhelpful in your relationship with your spouse. So one of them is manipulation. This is a deceptive tactic that seeks to avoid the perspective of others. It is a deception, whatever means you use it. You could withhold information, shade information in your favor, or blatantly lie or exaggerate in a conversation. In my home, we call this lawyering. Um, I, I 
pretty good at this. Unfortunately, I've been told, especially early, I mean, Jenna and I are creeping in on 25 years of marriage. I think the first 10 years, I won every argument because I was really good at manipulating the conversation. Um, and, and so then I would get confronted, you need to stop winning every argument. I'm like, well, I need to stop being right then. And that didn't go over well. Um, manipulation is, a, is, is dangerous for a relationship. Intimidation. Instead of solving conflicts, you just shut someone down. You could dominate by your presence, and you could be comfortable by being aggressive in relationships. Don't necessarily think intimidation is just yelling. Sometimes intimidation can come from being very quiet as well. I think intimidation is is a clear manifestation of pride. If you think of the most humble man you know, he's not at all intimidating. If you cultivate humility in your own heart, you can deal with intimidation in your relationships well. Isolation is another good one. Pursuit of relational distance. Commonly, this manifests itself in silence. This tactic makes seeks to make people pay by giving them cold indifference. And then another term, which Jenna told me this is an Anna Angstead term. I was trying to, I'm like, what's the word you use for, um, like when you try to diffuse the situation instead of addressing sin or just looking to kind of get rid of the conflict but not actually deal with the conflict? And Jenna goes, oh, Anna Angstead calls that peace faking. I'm like, oh, that's a good word. Yeah, we're, we're faking actual peace by just trying to diffuse the situation. I, I, honestly, in my, in my relationship, this probably manifests itself by quickly seeking forgiveness when I'm not actually in my own heart seeking forgiveness. But I'm just trying to shut down the fight by saying, you're right, I'm wrong, let's move on. Oh, that's, that's not actually seeking forgiveness. That's just trying to diffuse the situation. And these produce really unhelpful things in that relationship. The results are going to be false. When you're doing the peace faking thing, you're not actually confessing sin. And you're not actually trying to um, resolve the situation. You're just trying to have a peaceful, quiet home. Um, you're not going to have a peaceful, quiet home. You're brushing something under the rug. It's going to remove harmony from your marriage. And there will actually be very little peace in your marriage. Because all you're doing is generating more conflict. You're just covering it up. At the heart of all of this are two basic idolatries. The first one is we might believe the lie that God is not sovereign. Instead of trusting in the sovereign work of God and trusting him to bring about a biblical solution, we take manners into our own hands. And the other idolatry is we might think that superficial unity is sufficient. This idolatry takes comfort in the lie that we can be content with a fake unity. Obedience demands that we strive for actual biblical love that denies self. Superficial unity is not biblical unity. A quiet home without conflict out loud isn't what we're aiming at. We're aiming at uh, our own hearts transformed by the gospel 
and both of us growing in a love for each other and a love for God. That peace-faking or superficial unity is a human-manufactured, self-centered peace. It's always temporary. It gives people a false sense of peace, and Christ isn't involved in it at all. In the end, it dishonors Christ and never promotes the gospel. We are called as Christians to the opposite of this. We are called to engage conflict. We are to engage it in such a way that Christ becomes honored through the difficulty. On the other side, we learn to endure and become more selfless. So when I talk about engaging conflict, I don't want to be misunderstood here. Um, what, what I mean is engaging in the sin that's being manifest in a way that produces sanctification. And that that's, continues in this path of peacemaking. Um, it's part of like the biblical perspective or approach to peacemaking. So I want to put a few scenarios in your minds. Um, we could have a million scenarios. I mean, think of the number of times you've had conflict with somebody. Like, I, we don't have time to go through all of them. Um, and so I'm going to put through, just talk through a couple of scenarios. A couple fights. It could be, well, let's, let's just say that you're married to a believer. Um, she sinned against you. That sin isn't habitual. It's not something that requires a Matthew 18 process. It was a single occurrence of a, in a moment of passionate conversation. And somehow in this scenario that we're talking about right now, you didn't sin against her. I, this is probably the rarest of all of them. Um, but somehow you didn't sin against her. What are you to do? Forgive her. Overlook the offense and move on. Pardon her and move on. You don't even need to talk to her about it. It's a single case. It's one-off. She got worked up. Move on. What if you guys sinned against each other? She sinned against you in the same ways in scenario one. And you responded sinfully. You need to forgive her. Overlook the offense. And then you need to seek your own forgiveness. You need to walk through repentance. Um, Scott, are we doing a repentance lesson this year? Sweet. Okay, apply what you're learning next week, or in two weeks. Um, you need to seek her forgiveness, and you need to look at your own heart first um, and pardon her sin. And then there's the time where she sins against you, and this is the same way you've seen many times. You're seeing this pattern of unrepentant sin, and you responded by sinning against her. The same process holds as in scenario two. Overlook the offense. Seek her forgiveness. But don't ignore the sin. This is where the path of peacemaking really comes in. This is where we apply what Smed taught on Sunday. But doing it in that moment is not going to be helpful. Sitting down with her and saying, Hey, you know how we had that conversation a few weeks ago or a few days ago? Um, I've seen this pattern. Can we talk about that? 
and then go through what Smed talked about with Matthew 18. Um, the impulse is going to be responding in the moment with a, you always do this, which turns into your own sin in your own heart and not actually going through a biblical process of confronting sin that is repeated habitual sin that needs to be dealt with. We can't ignore sin. We can't not confront sin always. Um, we need to be willing to confront the sin that we see when it's habitual, when it's something that you see as a pattern. Um, looking at the, the quote in your notes that I stole from Jenna's notes, um, we need to take the steps of repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation. We need to start in our own hearts before we go confront the other person. Smed talked about pulling the log out of your own eye so that you can go um, talk about the speck in their eyes. We need to look to our hearts. This is something you guys have been learning and build, I'm assuming, weekly. Like, shepherd your own heart. See where you're sinful in this situation. Be very willing to start there in your conversations. Um, we need to be shepherding our hearts with God's will throughout this entire process before the conflict arises throughout the conflict we want to know God better we want to know our own hearts better and we need to be um, equipped to care for the hearts of the people around us the past we, path we must walk when sin and conflict is threatening to take us off that aim, starts with repentance. Starts with seeing our sin, um, confessing our sin, having godly sorrow over our sin, and then building our life around reconciliation. Christian, our entire life, our faith, is built on a foundation of reconciliation. Christianity is not just a God-given sight of our sin followed by confession. I need to turn this off. It's going nuts. It's not just forgiveness granted by a holy God who sacrificed his own son to make a way of forgiveness possible. If God had just drawn us to repentance and confession, if he had just forgiven us, that would be grace upon grace. Much more than we deserve beyond our understanding even now. But that's not all Christ imputed on us, to us. Walking with Christ is to be in a relationship with Christ. God has given us his very word. He has given us everything we need for life and godliness. He has left us his spirit and he will never leave us nor forsake us. He is our father. We are his children. Christian, Reconciliation is another aspect of God's salvation that we can carry throughout our entire lives, never to be left behind on the day of salvation. So we need to put into practice what Smed preached on Sunday. This isn't an alt, this isn't responding, like I said before, with a you always do this. This is responding with opening God's word and helping each other see our blind spots, helping each other care for each other's hearts. I, by God's grace, I don't see every single time I sin. I don't see every single time I fall short. Um, if I did, that would be an unbearable burden. 
But when my sin leaks out on you guys, I need to know. I need you guys to tell me. We need to be willing to tell each other when our sins are leaking out on each other. In closing, we've talked a lot about other sins, but we all know we're usually the ones that create the offense. Men, be a peacemaker. One way to do that is to make it easy for people to come to you and share your blind spots with you. This takes humility. It takes a love of holiness. It takes a right understanding that you're in a mixed condition and your sin leaks out. Be quick to hear where it's leaking out and then run from it. This is something I know and I think think as God grows you in humility, you become more approachable. So young men, ask God to grow you faster than he grew me. <laughs> um, it, it's been hard on my wife. And she said, I, it's hard to bring sin to you. That's the last thing you want to hear from the person closest to you, where your sin leaks out on the most. Um, have a, a humble standing before people and be ready to hear where sin leaks out on them. Let me close in prayer. Lord God, this is, this is a hard lesson to teach because I know my sin leaks. I know my sin has a damaging effect. And I know forgiveness is sometimes very hard. Lord, sin is ugly. It creates just so, so many ramifications of sin Lord some of the difficult scenarios I've talked about here it's hard to cling to what you did at the cross so that we can pardon those sins against us Lord that's tough and yet you've called us to do that we know you're good we love you and we know that when we forgive the way that you've called us to forgive it removes so much conflict, removes so much burden from our heart, removes so much of what makes life difficult in our own heart and grows our love for you and our love for others in ways that we can't fathom, God. So give us the power to be able to do that well. Give us hearts to forgive. Help us to be able to come alongside each other in this and be able to empower and encourage each other to be forgiving men. Lord, in your name. Amen.